0: Well, before, um, before, 10, before the Twelve Steps to Freedom and the Twelve Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, or before the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, there was the Ten Commandments, the summary of the Jewish Old Testament law. And for the next ten weeks, we're going to be looking at each of those commandments each week. Um, for the Jewish people and the ancient Israelites, the Ten Commandments were known just as the Ten Words. Um, Ten words, Ten Commandments, in English, barely 300 words long, and yet the Ten Commandments forms the foundation of our legal system and lies at the core of Western civilization. Um, Today we're looking at Commandment number one, and we're going to ask the questions, why was this given, when was it given, and how are we supposed to keep it? But first of all, I want us to consider the what of the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments is often just something that comes up in a pub quiz and you have to try to guess all ten. Or you might sit around with friends from time to time, I'm not sure you do this with your friends, I do with my friends, <laughs> say let's all name the Ten Commandments. I can't remember the last time I did that. We should do that again, that's a great great gag. Um, but often that's the, it's just a piece of trivia, who knows all ten? And we try to rattle through the list and go, done it. And the danger is with our Ten Commandments is that we've, we've taken them out of the when of the story and we've slapped them up on posters and billboards in our homes or in our chapels. We've isolated them or we, we've used them as a, as a stick to beat people with. And so this morning I want us to give as much space as possible to trying to remind ourselves afresh of the context, the story, the part in the story uh, of history where the Ten Commandments were originally given. We believe as Christians that God has spoken to us supremely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God become flesh. But God has also spoken to us in His Word itself. And so I want to read for us uh, a, a lengthy chunk of Scripture at the start of this series to set it in its place in the story and allow God to speak to us through it. The context, the background to what we're about to read is that the people of God, the ancient Israelites, um, have been enslaved in Egypt. They've lived there for 400 years, for much of it spent their time enslaved by the pharaoh kings, been made to, to work for uh, building the Egyptian empire. And for as long as you can remember, if you're an Israelite, you have lived in that environment of oppressive, an oppressive regime with its foot on your neck. In the last few weeks however things have been going a little bit strangely there's been some miraculous moments as God has been displaying his power over the Egyptian gods and in the last few days for the Israelites prior to what we're going to read God led them out of Egypt uh, miraculously and then when they were pursued by an army he parted the, the waves of a sea so they could walk through on dry land liberating them and rescuing them once and for all from their enemy. Then after all of that they arrive at a mountain in Sinai and something quite terrifying occurs before them. It's a moment in history that has shaped the world that we live in and we're going to engage with it together this morning. So let's just quiet in our hearts and allow God's word to speak to us afresh this morning. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And Yahweh said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud and that the people may hear what I speak with you and may also believe you forever." Now, when Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Incidentally, in Scripture, the third day is a day of symbolic significance. Uh, Once you notice it, you see how often it crops up that God moves in miraculous and powerful ways on the third day. Uh, Supremely in history, it was on the third day after Jesus' crucifixion on Easter Sunday that he rose from the dead. But the third day appears time and time again. And you shall set limits for the people all round, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third third day. Abstain from sexual relations. There's something that non-Western cultures appreciate about the importance of cleansing oneself. Um, we, we have the phrase in English that cleanliness is next to godliness, uh, and in a, in a sense, it's true. Um, friends of mine who aren't Western take a lot, of, a lot more showers than I do, not because they want to rid themselves of germs necessarily, but because they appreciate. There's something about cleansing the body to prepare the soul and heart and mind for something. That in the West, our moral taste buds have been conditioned to really only appreciate morality on the, on the scale of what's fair. And if it doesn't hurt anyone, that's okay. But for, for the rest of humanity, there's a much broader appreciation that morality encompasses not just doing the right thing so it doesn't hurt anyone, but also cleansing oneself, preparing oneself uh, in the way that you might um, use anti-bac and uh, hygiene laws when it comes to preparing food. So it is with ourselves as we approach God. As part of what's going on here, these people preparing themselves for something truly significant. Now on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to Yahweh to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to Yahweh consecrate themselves lest Yahweh break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying set limits round the mountains and consecrate it. And Yahweh said to them, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that it is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. So the sojourner who is is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word to us. Now the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationships The first four are about our relationship to God and the second six about our relationship to others. They have to do with how we're to live together and love one another and honor our creator. And the 4,000 years since that moment, since then, our society has radically changed. Compared to the nomadic desert-dwelling Israelites, our our systems and how we live day-to-day is very different. They know nothing of smartphones and the internet and electric cars. And yet as far as ethics goes, human beings have changed not in the slightest. We have the same nature, wrestle with the same vices and the same perhaps moral issues as our ancestors. You could say then that we need the same laws and the same rules that they did. Here we have in the story those words first spoken. To a group of people gathered by a mountain with thunder and lightning and smoke, we have a man speaking face to face with God himself. In this scene, if we're willing to engage it, we're faced with a God who is unlike anything else on the shelf. Before him, we get the impression that we ought to kneel and tremble in reverence, we're faced with the possibility that God is wild and holy and to be feared. It seems strange to us when we hear God saying, don't let them come close in case I break out against them. He seems unpredictable and untamable, even. Now we live in a world uh, of image management, and personal PR with our Instagrams, and our Snapchats, and our Facebooks. Uh, We're used to things that aren't too serious. Um, I mean, as serious as it is to watch videos of cats playing pianos, and taking photos of and seeing other people's dinner with a nice veneer on it, as serious as all of that is, and I wouldn't want to take away from the seriousness of it, it's not overly substantial or weighty. And yet here, in what we read, you do, you get the impression that there is something weighty here. We read about the raw power and authority that created everything, speaking to human beings. And honoring them, treating them with a dignity, by telling them his expectations for their lives, by raising their own expectations for themselves and who they are, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to live. These words ought to challenge us to our core, challenge our sense of belonging in the world. This occasion in history ought to turn our understanding of the world on its head. If he is, then who are we? and What are we? See, our lives are so fleeting. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. They are a vapor, a breath. I know someone who once preached a sermon in which he smoked a cigar and blew out the smoke and said to the congregation that's your life here gone and yet vapor though we are we have strong ideas about our own importance we are drilled from a young age with our own significance we understand particularly in our society where our lives are brimming with potential if only we can harness the gifts and the brilliance inside each one of us and yet our life is here and then it's gone. We are a fearful people, perhaps due to the expectations that we place on ourselves, but we are fearful, perhaps making sense of why it is in the Bible the most often repeated command is the command, do not be afraid. But we do, we fear. We have created a more prosperous and healthy society than has ever existed. And yet, the result has been that our levels of anxiety and nervousness are through the roof. We are afraid, afraid of missing out. Afraid of being left out, afraid of being wrong, of being disliked, of being judged, afraid of starvation and and loneliness, afraid of terrorism, afraid of burglary, and afraid of more than two inches of snow. (laughs) And yet here, in this Bible, in this scene, we're confronted with the one who is utterly other than us, who's unapproachable confronted with the reality that there is something more real and more substantial in, than this life the things that concern us on a day-to-day we're confronted with something and someone actually worth fearing being terrified of and i feel this each week i, I really I'm, i don't see that i'm here to just deliver a talk to give you some more information and ideas. I'm not really interested in a pep rally either. We're gathered together before God. When we sing. It's to remind ourselves that he's here. To impress on us the privilege. And the, rea- the privilege that we have. Of being able to approach this God. He's holy. And yet he's alive. And at work in our lives. And I want us to gain some level of perspective on our life by considering him. Life's so noisy, so busy. I think we need spaces, this space perhaps, to just take some moments to recenter ourselves on ultimate reality itself. Have you ever had that thing where you look back and you realize that five years ago at this time this was going on and I was... Stressed out of my eyeballs, I was anxious, I was worried and now you think, I don't care about those things. That's gone. I remember looking at photos from our wedding day and, and Amy says to me, you, you looked really tired on that day because you'd had a busy few weeks leading up to the wedding. What was I busy with? I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't important. It was at the time. But there's something about gathering as God's people underneath God's word allowing this to shape our values and ideas more than that to shape our values and ideas bombarded with images of gods and ideals we gather hopefully in a space that's very different not the building but the people to say we honor Christ as Lord in this place commandment number one is you shall have no other gods before me God is to come first in our lives, which in the ancient world was a ridiculous statement. Every people, every tribe, every nation had just dozens and dozens of gods that it treated like a a form of good luck charms, making all the different sacrifices they can to these gods, gods of agriculture, of fertility and sex, of parenting, of house cleaning, of even gods of cupboards they had in the ancient world. If you've been to the British Museum ever and and looked at the artifacts from this time in history, you'll have seen just dozens and dozens of gods. I have a book on my shelf called The, The Rise of Christianity in a World Full of Gods. Christians were the first people to be called atheists because they didn't have a god. There was no temple where you could go and look, this is our statue that we bow down to. In modern life, you might think, have no other gods? Well, I don't even have a god, so I'm not doing badly. We might not have statues that we bow down to, but we have gods, things that we worship. Psychologists tell us that there's a hardwired part in every human to honor and revere, to worship something. Your God is what you're devoted to, what you revere or what you fear. Makes sense, perhaps, of some of the, the, the thunder and lightning and the smoke and the terror of God because there is a sense in which Your God is the thing that you're scared of. Not afraid in the sense of monsters under your bed, but in the sense of not wanting to disappoint or let down. Being terrified of dishonoring that thing, whatever it is. We fear rejection. And as a result of that fear... It can turn otherwise honest people into people who are willing to lie to avoid disappointing that God and being confronted with the terror of rejection. We revere, which is another word for fear, we revere images of beauty and celebrity and success and the good life to the point that we might then ruin ourselves pursuing those things. We might distance ourselves from our family and our friends. We might shipwreck our health in order to get some kind of vaporous image of what success is. Maybe, just maybe, a lot of our problems in life are caused by the fact that we fear the wrong God. Gods. We don't fear the right God. You see, having a God has nothing to do with going to church or having a statue at home. It has everything to do with what you live for, what you revere what you honour, what you fear. To fear God is to know that you live underneath Him, that you, are, you do not control Him. He does not owe you. To fear God is to live mindful of Him, to live reverently in His world, since it's the one that He's made and placed you in as a steward. True mindfulness, then, doesn't just concern itself with living in the present but it concerns itself with being aware of his presence in the present the psalmist says be be still and know that I am God long before our schools and workplaces were encouraging us to take mindfulness breaks the bible was saying be mindful of him in the world having no other gods is about living underneath him, being aware of him. And you know, anytime you want to break any other of the nine commandments, you have to get through number one first. Think about it. The reason you might lie is because you are revering and fearing someone else's opinion. You're trying to honor yourself as a king, as a god. The reason you might commit adultery is because you're pursuing the God of sex and believing that contentment and happiness is found in different sexual experiences or a romantic attachment that will satisfy you or the reason you might covet and desire something that's not yours is because you don't believe that God is enough what God's given you the place that God has put you in the world can fulfill you So to break the other nine, you've got to get through the first one. In in 2006, Time magazine, as they do every year, released their front cover of the person of the year. And in 2006, they put a mirror on the front saying, you are the person of the year. We are gods. We are those who've been made in the image of God and yet rather than using our imagedness to represent god well to the world we have turned into ourselves turned onto ourselves looked at ourselves in the mirror and thought behold there is god staring back at me what can i do to satisfy this god i mean that's the the what of the first commandment and the commandments but what about the why why did god give these commandments to these people we're getting into what we read, there is talk of death and holiness. But then at the end, there is this strange verse where it says it says, "Do not fear, for God has come to test you, in order that the fear of Him may be before you. Do not fear in order that you might fear." It seems strange what's Moses saying. What he's saying is this. God is holy and terrifying, but he has chosen to live among you. Therefore, don't be afraid of God as though he's an enemy. He's going to destroy you in a moment. But live carefully and reverently before him because he is among you. Your conduct does matter. Now in our day, I don't think many of us need to be told don't be terrified of God. He might kill you. We're at the, perhaps the opposite end of the spectrum. Like, Treat God a little bit more seriously. But we probably do need to be told, live reverently before him. Live carefully. Because he is among you. The church is the temple of the living God. He dwells inside each Christian. We as the community of believers are, are holy people. And that helps us to understand why the Ten Commandments were given. The what the Ten Commandments was given because God has come to live among his people. And he wants them to know what's expected of their their behavior. He's calling them to a different standard, a higher standard. He's calling them to almost a, a position and posture of royalty in the world. We are God's people. We should behave responsibly therefore. In, in Paul's letter in the New Testament to the church in Corinth, he writes to them about this dynamic where he says, "It's not for us to judge those outside the world." Now, sometimes Christians they get a reputation for being judgmental. And when the New Testament says, "It's not our job to judge those outside the world," those who aren't Christians, who don't name the name of Christ, they, in, in many respects, can live how they want. The Ten Commandments weren't for them originally. But for us in the church, in the people of God, and so, in in the letter to the to the Corinthians, Paul says, "Don't judge those outside the world; judge those inside the church." Don't judge those outside the church, but inside the church, which sounds strange to us. But the believers, we are called to be a holy people. When we say judge, it means less point your finger and wag, you know, get annoyed at people for their failing standard. It's more of a be careful confess your sins to one another speak the truth in love to one another that's why they're given and all of that so far I think helps us get to the significance of the when they're given because so far it can make us feel like gosh this is heavy this is hard this God who can stand before this God at least that's how I read it and yet the amazing amazing truth that's contained in the first two verses of what we read needs to be engaged with to help us understand the significance and the place of the Ten Commandments in the Christian's life. Listen to this. Verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 20. This is juicy. Right, listen. God spoke all these words saying, "Right, it's like brace yourselves, here come the Ten Commandments, here comes ten rules that you must obey. But he starts it by saying this. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you see it? The significance of that in light of what's to come. The commands of the Ten Commandments are given after, not before, after he's rescued them from slavery. God has rescued them, forgiven them, healed them, transformed them, accepted them, said, I'm your God. Then he says, here's some rules to sort your lives out that you don't shipwreck yourselves on other gods and other ways of living. My point is this, rescue comes before rules. Redemption comes before requirements. If you just slap rules on people, you'll kill them. You cannot live up to this, Christians. If you think the Ten Commandments are given so that you go, this is what I've got to do to please God, and if I don't do this, I'm doomed. You've missed it. God rescued them and then said, now, my people, those that I've loved and I've come to be with, here is how to live before a holy God. Here's how to make sure you don't put yourselves back in slavery again. Here's ten things that you can do. God sees us caught in our fear. He sees us enslaved to other gods, whether it's gods of career or family expectation, gods of beauty and image and finance, success, that we just run after. He sees us enslaved to those things. And rather than just saying, here's 10 ways to get yourself sorted, he says, here, let me rescue you. Let me forgive you. And now here's some ways to live. I mean, in the New Testament, Jesus takes these 10 and he ramps them up a notch. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's a lot of what he's doing. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, do not even look at a woman with lustful intent. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, anyone who says to his brother, Rucker in anger is punishable before the Sanhedrin in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus ramps it up. And if we're sitting there going, the way I get right with God is by not murdering, not committing adultery, not this, not that. And Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not really that. It's about what you're doing in your heart. If we hear Jesus saying, until you've sorted this, you can't be right with God. We're doomed. At least I am. You might be a lot better than me. That's fine. I'm sitting there going, what's he talking about? Rescue comes before rules. It's a bit like uh, in the film Titanic. Um, it all comes back to Jack and Rose eventually, doesn't it? That tragic love story of... Um, yeah, so the boat sinks. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Uh, the boat sinks, and there's that moment at the end where, where Jack and Rose are having this beautiful kind of parting. He dies, um, and then sinks, which is weird, because when bodies drown, normally they float, and everyone else is floating, but he drowns and sinks into the abyss. Uh, and he doesn't so much sink as she pushes him off. Like, there's lots of pieces of driftwood lying around in the ocean after the boat's sunk. And she finds one to climb on top of and doesn't try to make him get on. She's just like, no, no, this is for me. And then just as she's close to giving up and she's dying and she's freezing to death, holding her loved one's hands, she sees a, a boat in the distance. And there's a Welsh man with a, a flashlight. And in this kind of very eerie ghost-like voice, he's, he's scanning the, the bodies in the sea and he's saying, is anybody alive out there? Is anybody alive out there? And Rose comes to her senses and she goes, help, help, help. And she, she swims to some other dead person and she steals the whistle out of his hand and she blows it like, help, help. And eventually the Welshman comes over with the boat. And he doesn't say to her, now, lovey, it's great that you're alive. Before you get in the boat, you should know we have some house rules. Number one, no stealing other people's blankets. It's not fair. Number two, uh, don't share in hot drinks because we don't want to share germs because if somebody gets sick, it's not going to go very well. Number three, don't rock the boat. If he, I've got ten more. I've got some more to go, Rose. You just stay there a minute. He doesn't. He says, let's get you into the boat. Let's get you dry. Let's put a blank on you. Let's get you a drink. And then he might say to her, now we've got some rules to make sure we don't die. But the point is rescue comes before rules. The rules are there to help us. God says, "I am Yahweh, your God who rescued you. now learn to live like this in order to stop yourself going astray again. The rules are for us they're not for him. God isn't a God isn't one of those health and safety officers who just love rules and a clipboard and a fluorescent jacket. God isn't like that. He gives rules for us because he's concerned about you and me. Have no other gods before me. In his 10 ways of how to live a blessed and happy life. You see, the other gods on the shelf besides God are beings and things that become harder and harder to satisfy the more and more you devote yourselves to them like any addict knows the initial high of pleasing and honoring some god diminishes and you have to sacrifice more and more to return to that same high in the beginning it was just about one encounter one website that I visited now I need several and I need longer and it needs to be harder and it needs to be more risque to give me the same high that I had. Not so with the God of the Bible, the God who loves you. At the wedding, of Cana, the wedding at Cana in Galilee, Jesus turns the water into wine and what is it the Toastmaster says? He says, most people you know, waste the, the best wine at the beginning and then bring out the cheap stuff, but you have saved the best until now. The more you honour and devote yourselves to God, the better and better this God gets. The more there is for you to know your position as someone who's loved and called and chosen and has been accepted and cherished by that God. That's the what, that's the why, that's the when and lastly and briefly how then. How do we keep these rules? Because we might be signed up and say, okay, I get it, like 10 rules to live to help me flourish. Good, that's much better than 10 sticks to get beaten with when I mess up. I understand that. But still, how? Especially if since Jesus says it's not really about the externals, it's about the heart. How on earth am I meant to keep myself from coveting and desiring something that's not mine? I do it for 10 minutes at church because I'm putting on my Sunday face and then I go home and go on Facebook and think their life's so much better than mine. I want it. How do we do it? If you've ever tried it, you know it's hard but the Bible says you don't need to try and do it in your flesh and in your own strength through just grit and determination. God has sent his spirit into our hearts. In order that we might know and empowering by the Holy Spirit to live as He's called us to live. And last summer, uh, we were borrowing a kayak off my family, and we I managed to secure some babysitters, and even more miraculously, I managed to convince Amy to come on an epic, adventurous kayak with me. Um, I said to her, "We're going to kayak from Splash Point to the Cookmere Inn." Um, I was excited. I I thought to myself I cannot believe that Amy has agreed to do this and so when she asked me have you checked the tides I said it doesn't matter it'll be fine because I knew if I had checked the tides and the tides were against us she would never have agreed to it and I would have to wait another year and get some more babysitters and I'm if you know anything about me at all it's that I'm I struggle with impulsivity Um, I, I have an idea and I must act on it yesterday and so uh, I managed, we got the babysitter, we got the kayak, we're in the water, and it's sunny. Well, The thing is, the day before, I went out with a friend, and it was calm as anything. It was beautiful. And so I thought, it's going to be the same, right? Well, we went around the bay, by the cliffs. Um, I start scaring Amy with talk of sharks. Um, just because, you know, we like to increase the drama and the tension in our marriage. Uh, helps us open up and argue about things that are really important. Uh, and before long, I realized these waves are bigger than yesterday. The wind isn't on our side, and the tide doesn't seem to be helping us. But I'm never going to admit this out loud. So we battle, and she's thinking, is this normal? I'm like, this is fine. Don't worry. It's fine. But we're battling through these waves, and, um, and it, it was depressing. It was one of those days where you're kayaking, for like five minutes, head down against the waves, and you look up and realize, I've hardly moved, (laughs) but I'm not going to tell her again. So we just keep going, and after 40 minutes, uh, or 45, an hour, two two days of doing this on the kayak, we hadn't got very far. We were nowhere near, even the entrance to the mouth of the river. And eventually I said, shall we turn around And she said, yes, you fool. Of course, I said that ages ago, uh, but you're too stubborn to listen. Um, it's never good to come try to get group therapy on a Sunday morning with Amy listening at the back. But here we go. So we turned around, and what took us 45 minutes to get to took us like five minutes to get back because we had the current on our side. Trying to keep commandments in your strength and energy is like trying to row a kayak against the current with the waves against you. Compare that to the other scenes that we see in the summer of people out there with their, their yachts, um, with their big sails, and they, they have to do some work. They have to try to get this, the, the sail and the boom and the other bits in the right place. Boom is the only term I know to do with sailing. Uh, so they get their boom and they do something with it, and they catch the wind. And if they catch the wind right, they fly through the water very fast. The Holy Spirit is like that wind that catches our sails. That learning to live and obey and honor God in this way requires us to, to be filled with his breath, his life. It's about us responding to his rescue, saying please now empower me and help me to live the life that you've called me to live. And as the Holy Spirit comes upon us, empowers us and strengthens us, we find ourselves realizing That this God gives more and more and more of himself along the journey. He's not a God who says, you're on your own. Just try hard and let me know how you get on. Oh, and I'll, I'll remind you when you don't succeed. He's a God who says, here, I've rescued you, forgiven you. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is gone. You're now mine. Now as mine live like this, but to live like this. Here, have my spirit, my breath, my power, my life in you. That you might know what it is to be fully alive life in abundance and that is how we are to live as those who do not break the first commandment that we're to live as those who have no other gods besides God and understand his place and his part in our lives and we're going to respond together this morning by breaking bread and drinking some juices as symbols a way of reenacting Jesus' death on the cross where he made a new agreement with the human race He said, I'm going to rescue you and here's how I'm going to do it. My body's going to be broken. My blood's going to be poured out so that you don't have to be broken for me. So that you can know my life, my grace, my love in you, enabling you to live afresh and to live in a different way. And we're going to take bread and juice and respond to God in song. Um, But as we do that, I invite you to stand with me. I'll pray and the band can join us to help lead us as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who is for us and with us and on our side. You're the God who has put his spirit within us, who sent his son into the world to love us, redeem us, forgive us. We thank you that you're the God who, gives us, who rescues us before you insist on us obeying rules. When we come to you this morning, we respond to what you've done in our lives by breaking bread and remembering your death on a cross for us. Amen. Amen. There's a table at the back and two at the front. Um, this is something that's, for those of you who would say you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you've put your hope in him, you would call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter if you normally would come to this church or not, you're welcome to join us at the tables. If you're not sure, or if you're, you would definitely say I'm not a believer in Jesus, I'm not a Christian, then this is one for you to just sit out and watch as, as we do this. This is our way of engaging with God together. But for all of us, let's respond and use this song as a way of engaging uh, with what Jesus has done for us.